This morning's reading is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be, was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the, men, the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You know, back in the day when Carol and I wanted a, a cheap date, we would go uh, antique shopping. And uh, it was easy, it was cheap, and it was uh, generally fun. And it was always made better, though, when we could find a piece of furniture that was uh, a good piece of furniture, but it may have been covered over with paint or varnish or something like that. You always wanted that that kind of gem of a piece, but you couldn't see it. You know, it had been covered over that, you know, you kind of had to have an eye to see it. And so we even have a few of those pieces still in our home where where they really looked poor, but they were so much more. And when the paint was removed and the varnish was scraped, and then all of a sudden you had a really beautiful piece of furniture. Well, in some ways, this is what's happened with Christmas. We've put layers of tradition on it, and some of them are fine, and perhaps we've done it innocently. Uh, but we forget the richness and the beauty and really the starkness of Christmas when you read a passage like this. You, you know, the, these, these magi or wise men are going to be our second witness to this birth of the Messiah. And it really has all the makings of a great story. It has a, a strong plot. It has a good setting. It has memorable characters. It has the tension or the conflict that you need. And it has resolution to it. it, it it's, it's all there. And what, what we're going to see, I think, when you look at the text is these magi have three encounters. They, they encounter his star, and we're going to see it in the first two verses. And they're, they're going to encounter Herod, the king, and that's kind of three to eight. And then they're going to encounter the Christ child. So he's going to have, these magi are going to have encounters with people. And here's what we're going to find in each one. In each one, we're going to see that God is drawing people to worship the Son with exceeding joy in the midst of opposition. So God is going to be drawing the nations to the Son to worship this child, uh, but it's going to be in the context of opposition. So let's look at the first encounter. So just in the first two verses, you're going to see these wise men in his star. Notice when he says, 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod king, uh, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, when he says behold, this is like a, a writer's way of saying pay attention. Uh, there's something going on here. There's kind of an irony that Jesus is born in Israel to the nation of Israel, and yet it's wise men from the east that are coming to worship. Now, now who are these wise men? Who are these magi? Um, well, let me start with who they're not. So l- let's just kind of pull back some of the layers here. Uh, they're not magicians like Dumbledore or Gandalf or, or David Copperfield. That, that wouldn't be these wise men or these magi. Um, it, it wouldn't be, probably, it wouldn't be three of them. You know, tradition has that three magi came because of three gifts. Um, we don't know that it's three. It could have been more given the length of the journey, given the wealth that they were carrying uh, in terms of gold, uh, given the dignitaries that they were, given the fact that it was a long, long journey. They may have taken their families. It could have been 30 35, 50 people. It could have been a huge entourage. And plus, you know, you noticed in there that, that when Herod heard this, he was troubled. I don't think three guys on three camels are going to really rattle anybody's pans when they're king of a city. So probably more than three. Not only that, but they probably weren't even kings. Right? They were magi. The, the word magi, it's our word for magic. Uh, we're not kings. Um, We'd probably have to change the song. I love We Three Kings of Orient are. We'd have to, as one blogger said, change it like We Three Kings of Orient aren't or something like that. Uh, but they probably weren't kings. Well, who were these folks, these, these magi? Well, well, they were probably intellectuals, philosophers, priests. Uh, they, were, they were men who probably were a cross between astronomers They're studying the stars, but also astrologers in that they're interpreting the stars. They were probably from the ruling class. You know, with the type of gifts that they had, uh, they would be significant people. And and, and, uh, we assume that they're probably from Babylon, maybe Persia. Why do I say that? Well, because they were from the east, that's east of Jerusalem, but but also because um, the gifts that they had uh, that would be common to those areas. But, but there's one more reason I think that they probably, probably would be from Babylon or Persia is because they somehow knew something of the Christ. They knew something of the Messiah. And you know, in Babylon, there's still a contingent of Jewish people from the exile. And by the way, Daniel was called a Magi. And you know, he went with the exiles to Babylon. So, so, so that's probably giving us an idea uh, that, that these were intellectual philosophers, priests um, from Babylon or Persia. Now, what about the star? You know, where did the star come from? It, well, you know, I can say, well, it could be a comet, perhaps, or it could be a supernova, or maybe some planetary alignment that would produce some light. But that still doesn't really answer how they could follow it. Maybe God created an astral body. Uh, that was bright. He led the nation of Israel through the uh, 40 years with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Maybe it was that. In in the end, we don't know. Uh, And while it's fine to speculate, I I don't think it's appropriate to fixate. You know, when you tend to focus on the peripheral, you tend to miss the essential. 
Uh, what's essential about this is the fact that it didn't move itself. Uh, it, it, stars don't move by themselves. It was being moved. It was being acted upon. It, that God was directing uh, this star to lead these men uh, to worship Christ. Uh, so, so this is the encounter. It's just Magi and his star. Now, now just a couple takeaways for you uh, from this encounter. Don't you see how God is marshalling his entire universe to bring about worship for his son? That's what I want you to see. I, I want you to see he's using angels and he's sending them to do his bidding. Um, we see that he uses the light of the star to bring men from the east to worship the sun. But if you were to look in Luke 2, you would find out that Caesar Augustus just happened to want to have a census. Well, I would argue that, that God moved on him to have a census. Why? Because it moved all their families back to their place of origin. And so Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth. But the baby, the the son of David, the son of God, was to come from Bethlehem. So the census... The political machinery of Rome that ordained a census is what moved them back to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy in, in Micah 5 too. So God's using all these things to bring about this movement of people to worship the Son. In fact, as one author said, it's kind of God wields the universe to make his Son known and to make his Son worshipped. God wants Christ worshipped. And he brings them from from afar to do just that. But there's another takeaway. Do you see that they couldn't have found Christ apart from God? That God leads us to the Son. Now, you know, it isn't human wisdom. It isn't our ingenuity. It's not our sort of discovering of new wisdom that all of a sudden puts Jesus on the map for us to find. In fact, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, in the, he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, you can't find Christ on your own. He has to lead you to him. Now, now many of us are seeking truth. Many of us are seeking love. And many of us are seeking security. Many of us are seeking romance. Many of us are seeking a, a degree of significance. God may use those searches that you have to let you see the temporal, unsatisfying nature so that your eyes do go up and, and you do begin to look for some degree of transcendence. You know, I quoted that, I think it was from Dorothy Sayers before, that even the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We want transcendence. We want to know there's more in life than we have. So God uses that to draw us to him. But remember this, he'll always use his word. He'll always use the scriptures to lead us to worship Christ. I would even say that in the case of these wise men. You know, these wise men had to have some acquaintance with the Hebrew Scriptures. I, I would actually say there might be a connection uh, with these wise men knowing the book of Numbers. In Numbers 24, you have a scene where Israel's going through the wilderness. They're heading to the Promised Land. And, and, and the, the countries that Israel was going through were terrified of them. And one such king, Balak, wanted to hire Balaam, who was a prophet, to curse Israel. But he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him curse Israel. God, every time he tried to bring a curse, God would make him give a blessing. And one of the blessings he gave is found in chapter 24. And this is what Balaam says. So he's supposed to curse Israel. Here's what he says. 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So did he make the connection that there's going to be a star that rises that leads me to the one who will exercise dominion? I would argue there's a possibility of that. But not only does God want his son worship, not only does God draw us to worship him, but I would say that God is showing us here he wants all peoples to worship him, and not just the Jews. You know, if you notice here, in, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't record the Jewish shepherds that went to see Jesus on the day he was born. There's nothing of the Jewish shepherds. Matthew refers to these Gentiles, these magi, these magicians, these priests of another culture. Why? To show that Christ is going to have an appeal to all the nations. In fact, if you remember in, in um, Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is told that his seed will be a blessing to the nations, this is the first fruit right here. This is what happened. God promised it to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of the promise. God wants to draw people from every ethnicity, from various genders, ages, races, cultures. They're all going to be around the throne. God wants all people to know and love the Son. And let me give you the last thing that I see in this first encounter. In this first encounter, you see that God calls people in various ways. He uses stars in this case. How did he call you? If you're a Christian here, how did your eyes open? What were you searching for? What were you looking for? What brought you to see Christ as great? Was it, was it a friend? Was it, was it a tragedy? Did someone die that made you think about these things? What did God use to draw? We're all seekers. We're all worshipers. We're all pursuing things. We all want something. But what was it that he led you to want Christ? Uh, this is a great time of the year to discuss these things. To, if you have family in town, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing to talk. This is how God has opened my eyes to himself. Uh, this is how God has ha helped me to see that Christ is glorious. Carol and I, whenever, and I've told you this before, but whenever we have new people in the home or they come to the church, and we always love to find out, how did you become a Christian? You know, wh what were the influences in your life? How did God work in your life to reveal himself to you? I, I would encourage you, over this season, share that with someone. Just let them know. It's a neat way of finding the variety of God. You know, in Matthew 13, you have those two parables together. The man walking across the field all of a sudden just discovers a treasure. And there he is, and in his joy, sells everything he has and buys the field. And then you have the other the parable right next to it. Uh, the man seeking fine pearls. He's looking for pearls. And when he finds a perfect pearl, he sells everything he has and gets the pearl. One's looking, one's not. God does it in all kinds of different ways. So that's the first encounter. Just the Magi and his star. Okay, let's look at the second encounter. And you see this in verse 3. This idea of the Magi now meet Herod. Meet Herod. Notice in verse 3, he says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with, with him. Now, Herod was troubled. That word means agitated. It could mean terrified. Now, for Herod to be terrified, the whole town should be terrified because he was a psychopath is what he was. Herod was not an heir to the throne. He got there by bribery and manipulation. 
It's been said by Martin Luther that it would be better to be a sow of Herod than a son of Herod. That's how je- he was jealous and he was easily intimidated. That while he was administratively gifted and he was a prolific builder, and that's hence the name Herod the Great, he murdered his wife and her mother and her, and her brother when he felt threatened by them. And he murdered at least two, if not three, of his sons when threatened by them. And his, his reign became increasingly wicked and hostile and paranoid. So when these magi come up to him, and he probably had one or two years left in his reign, he reigned from about 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., when they came up and said, hey, there is a king born. He's king of the Jews. Well, that's going to rattle his pans. And so he gets all the religious leaders together and finds out where is this king to be born. Now remember, did you notice he says here, he was born king. He, didn't, he wasn't succeeding to be king. He wasn't in line to be king. He wasn't soon to be king. He was the king. He is the king now. He's against you, Herod, right now. And so he finds where this, where this baby's going to be born. And of course, he is only faking, he's feigning this desire to worship. He wants to kill him. And he will kill him or he will try to kill him. We're going to see that next week. It was a horrible scene in Bethlehem. He was a wicked man. So you see this hostility to the announcement. The announcement goes out, the star, some are coming to worship, and others want to kill him. But then you see, look at the chief priests and the religious leaders. I mean, they have staggering indifference. They're the ones that referenced Micah 5 too, and in that prophecy, it's a predictive prophecy, In this prophecy, it says a ruler will come out of Bethlehem. He will be a shepherd of the people. So what the priests are saying is, this king is in line with David, the great king. And he's going to be a shepherd, but he's going to be far greater shepherd than David. He's going to have a great name, and his reign is going to be majestic, it says. And when you hear that he's the son of David, your mind goes back to 2 Samuel 7, which is a promise that David would have a son and he would have a kingdom that would reign forever. It wouldn't be bound by temporal years like we are. So this Davidic king is going to be somehow of another order. And and these chief priests and religious leaders told Herod this, and they don't even go investigate. They don't even go inquire. They don't send a delegation as a courtesy. They don't even go in secret just to see what happened. I mean, it's staggering indifference. You know, here these wise men travel a thousand miles to find Christ, and they can't go to the next town, which was about five miles away. Well, what was it? Do you think it was just their stupendous learning that prevented them from listening to any wisdom from from a bunch of Gentiles? It's incredible. But what you see in this encounter with Herod, you see the reaction to the announcement. Some will be hostile, some will be indifferent. And don't you see that today? Now, I, I, I question whether anybody here would be hostile to it. You know, I mentioned last week, most of us, if we go out in the street, we talk about Christ as he's a friend of mine and he helps get me through life and he comforts me when I'm sad and kind of helps me up when I'm sick. Most people can embrace that. That's great for you because there's no implication to me. If he helps you, wonderful. But when you begin to announce that he's born king, and that, by the way, he's sovereign over the entire universe, and by the way, he's your creator and your king, 
and you're going to bow the knee, then you're going to find some hostility. Why? Because of our self-love. We don't want to have to worship somebody else. We, we don't want to have to bow down to somebody. I love myself. We don't want to worship him or, or his, his reign as king as a threat to our self-rule. We love personal autonomy. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And, and Christ threatens that. That's why people respond with hostility. That's why in Milton's work, Paradise Lost, he says, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. That's why many people feel. They're hostile. They don't want to worship Christ. They don't. I mean, you, you can't tell me who I'm going to worship. And so there's a degree of hostility. But, you know, Jesus said that would be the case. He said, I've not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He knows there's going to be hostile, hostility. He faced it. And Paul, reflecting on this later in 2 Corinthians 3, he says that he's an aroma of life to those who are being saved, but he's an aroma of death to those who are perishing. So there's hostility. So if you're a new Christian, this is something to be expected, that there will be hostility. That if you raise up Jesus as a conversational piece, that generally there's a quick awkwardness that comes on a conversation. So if you're on the plane, if you're in the grocery store, if you're at the office, and, and, you, and here it is, Christmas, Christ Mass. It, you know, here it is, Christmas, and you raise anything about Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden there's kind of a squeamishness that comes on everybody. Great, great, that's great for you. you know. There's a backing away, and you start going through whatever you're doing. You know, th there isn't a desire to discuss, because... Many don't want to worship him. They don't want to love him. And that's a reaction we need to be aware of. But also, look at the indifference here. Because that's the other kind of reaction that you see. To this announcement, so if you go to your neighbor and you announce to them that we're celebrating Christ as king of the world, and this is his, kind of his birthday sort of thing, there can be the hostility or the indifference. The indifference is simply, <clears throat> and this is danger for us, I think. Those often closest to the truth can be the farthest from salvation. You know, those with the highest privileges of having the word and the truth of the gospel can often be the most indifferent to it. You know, you can, to have a head full of knowledge about Jesus, even solid knowledge, if it doesn't penetrate the heart and move in affections, it does you no good. There's a great dialogue between John Newton. John Newton was writing a friend. John Newton was a pastor in the 18th century in England. And he has a book just on his letters that have been collected, pastoral letters. The wisdom is just off the charts. It's very, very, very helpful for us. But he wrote a letter to a friend who was struggling with not having knowledge, the deep knowledge that other people have. So here's what he writes. And this is to Dr. Taylor of, of Norwich. Uh, he said this, Dr. Taylor of Norwich told me one day that he had critically examined every word in the Old Testament 17 times, and yet he did not see those glorious things in the scriptures which a plain, enlightened Christian sees. The doctor had not the plain man's eyes. A man may be able to, a man may be able to call a broom by 20 names in Latin, Spanish, Dutch, and Greek, etc. But my maid who knows the way to use it, but knows it only by one name, is not far behind him. You know, the, the idea of, of knowing him and loving him is the issue. This indifference, you know, it, it, it can be like we have in our marriages, if you're married. 
you know, after 10 or 15 years, there can be this level of familiarity and, and the expressions of love and the appreciation and the thankfulness and the gratitude. We don't want that in our marriages. We want to have a vital, growing love for our spouses. Same thing with the faith. We don't want it to nosedive. In fact, Lewis kind of adds this. C.S. Lewis, he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. We don't want to look at Christianity as just, yeah, it's, it's working or it's good. So if you're, if you're interested in Christianity, if, if there's a draw for you to learn more about Christianity, uh, the one thing you need to know is that to come by faith to Christ is you're coming to faith in a king who is worthy of all of your worship and all of your obedience. Now, Christians are okay with this. Christians are happy to obey Christ. Christians are happy to worship him. Why? Well, because he's the good shepherd that has come out of Israel. And this good shepherd has laid down his life for us. This good shepherd has suffered for our sins. This is the nature of the gospel, that Jesus Christ would come and dwell among us, and he would bear our sins, and then he would bear the wrath of God to satisfy God's desire for justice and yet also to satisfy God's desire to forgive because he will have borne our sin. And so we want to obey. We want to worship. Why? Because he's so gracious and good. In other words, we don't obey him because we fear him or we don't obey him because we want him to love him. We obey him because he's already loved us. He's already died for us. He's already suffered for us. So our motivation to worship him is born out of love. It's not trying to grab something that we want, but it's really reacting to something that, he, that we already have. So that's the encounter with Herod. There's going to be multiple reactions to this announcement. We see it with the Magi and the star. We see the Magi and Herod. Now look with the encounter of the Magi and the Christ child. And that begins in verse 9. <clears throat> this is a beautiful part here. He says in 9, and after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place the child was. So they leave Herod. They're, they're not aware of anything at this point, right? They go, they leave Herod, and they see the star. They're excited. And, and they're excited because the star has come to rest, and they, they're going to see now the end of their journey. They're going to see the one who has who's the whole world will rest upon his shoulders. But, but I, want, I want to maybe remove one more layer off of, the, um, off of the Christmas story. So they probably arrived to see Jesus maybe four or six or even a year after he was born. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because of a couple of reasons. Remember, it says, when we saw his star ar arise, then they began their journey. Whether they're coming from Babylon, Persia, it could be as much as a thousand miles away. It's going to take them months to travel. Remember, they've got to travel at night because they've got to follow the star. So it's going to take them months to get there. But not only that, notice in the text it says that they entered the house. He wasn't born in a house. You don't know where he was born, a manger, a stall, some cave, some place, but not a house. But not only that, notice too that next week we're going to see that Herod, when he finally figured out when the child was born, he killed all the children up to two years of age. So he wanted to make sure that he knocked out or attempted to kill this newborn king. 
So what I want us to do then is when we get home, we go to our nativity scenes. And you have your three wise men and you've got your shepherds around them. Just move the wise men out in the porch or the yard or something. They're still traveling. They're still coming here. The shepherds, the wise men, they never got to meet each other. They never shook hands or crooks or whatever they did. They weren't there. But that doesn't take away from the reality of the story that they were exceedingly joy-filled over the star showing where the Christ child was. And notice what Matthew what, what he does in verse 10, he says, they, he doesn't say, and they found the child and rejoiced. They said they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Four different words to say the same thing. I think he's trying to highlight, Matthew's trying to highlight the incredible joy that they have, that the end of the journey has come. We have now met the one upon whom God has sent upon the whole world will come to need and love and follow. Remember that passage in Isaiah last week. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, you get the Davidic language again, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. So what he's saying here is think about it. You have a perfectly benevolent king who will lead a perfectly just and righteous government. Wouldn't you just love that? Wouldn't you just love to know that the king and his government is perfectly, perfectly righteous in every way? This is why they're rejoicing. This is why we rejoice. This king has come. He is now at the right hand of God. His full rule and reign is not yet consummated in its fullness but it will be that's what we long forward to that's why that's why advent means a coming we now are looking forward to this coming king to fill us with joy over the reign that he will establish but not only were they filled with joy you see they react with a willingness to embrace sacrifice these magi traveled thousand miles they opened themselves to harm's way and they come, and when they find them, they open the treasury boxes, these boxes of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, a lot of, a lot of pastors can make hay with, uh, this is what the gold means, it's the metal of the kings, and this you know, frankincense is kind of the fragrance that you offer up in worship, and myrrh is kind of that ointment that you use at burial, and they can trace all this out. And maybe it has some of those meanings. I'm not going to look at it that way. I would just look at all of them are representative of these Magi are giving to the Christ child. This is the best of what we have. This is the most of what we are. We're giving it all to you. Because you're so worthy, we're giving it all to you. And I think you know this intuitively. I mean, you naturally give generously to that which you treasure most, don't you? I mean, I mean don't you, 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 you love your kids. You don't see the costs of raising them as, as a burden that you don't want to bear. There's only one time I used to be a CPA, and, and I remember one time thinking, I'm just going to calculate the cost of my children. I, I've got all the records. I've had quick. I'm just going to determine to the what have we spent on these children. This is a dark moment in my life. I'm trying to be honest with you. And I remember I was about ready to pursue it, and I thought, I couldn't handle it. I don't think I could handle it. I don't have the medal for it. I won't even do it. I didn't do it. But, but as I thought about it, I've never once begrudged them for it. Well, maybe once, maybe twice, 
but 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 they're your kids. You don't if they have a medical issue, if they have an educational, whatever they need, you you want to serve them because you treasure them. I mean, why do mothers run into burning houses to save a child? I, I, they just run right there. You don't have to tell them. Oh no no, it's really dangerous. You could lose your life. You, they don't count the cost when they treasure the child. And that's the same with these, these magi. It gives us a picture of worship. We don't count the cost. If you treasure Christ as supreme, there is no cost to enjoy him. This is what Paul said in Philippians. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. The, the value of Christ to the Christian is incalculable. And, and so there is no cost. There is no cost to us. But notice one other aspect uh, about, about their worship. It was worship in faith. You n- notice that these men would have come in, and think of how foolish it would have looked. These educated Rich, aristocratic men come in and they fall down before a nursing infant. The child can't even feed or clean himself, and yet they fall down and worship. They worship him. The baby hasn't said anything brilliant. The baby hasn't performed any great miracle. There's nothing that is physically present that would cause them to act with such humility and homage other than they know who this child is. You know what it's like? It would be no different than the thief on the cross next to Jesus Christ. I mean, think about, think of the irony there. He's dying as a thief next to an alleged thief dying. And he says, remember me when you get to your kingdom. Two dying men. We're not worried about death at this point. Remember me when you get there. That's faith. That's faith on steroids. He's dying and I'm putting my faith in him. This baby hasn't done anything. And I would say this to you. You know, if, if this Christmas season is challenging for you and, and, and you're, you're wondering where God is, there is no evidence of God's grace and power in your life, I, I would ask you, hang on. They saw no evidence. And yet this was the Christ child that would grow up to, to bring the gospel and to bear our sins and to save us. Just if, if things are dark right now, I, I would ask you to hang on and walk by faith. Uh, God is moving in ways that you, he has not yet evidence to you. Though you don't see the evidence, please don't discount the ability of God to deliver and save you when you cry out to him. None who call upon the Lord will be disappointed. I would encourage you, if you're having time and you're saying, God, you're nowhere present in my life, call upon the name of the Lord. He will deliver you. It may be in a way that you may not immediately see, but, but wait in faith, wait. So, so what are the takeaways from this experience of the Magi and the child, this encounter? Well, I would say first, consider your own worship. Consider the degree to which you have joy over Christ. So if I were to ask a friend of yours, do they see you as a person with joy in Christ? doesn't mean you're giddy and happy and goofy, but there's the solidness to your joy, your confidence, your happiness in him. Or if you're married and you have kids, ask your kids. You know, would they say that they grew up with a parent who had a deep joy in God and a deep satisfaction? And by the way, when you're considering the level of joy that you have, how about the way you look at costs in following Jesus? Now, some of us struggle to read the Bible. 
It's hard to read it. Sometimes you read it, and you're like, what did I just read? You read it again, you still don't know what you read. And then you read on and you forget what you just read. Reading the Bible is not reading the USA Today. It's a challenge to get through. It's a, it's a, but, but remember this, gold's not laying on top of the, on top of the grass. So you've got to dig for it, and it's there when you dig. But, but is that a cost too much to bear, to learn about the one who has died for you? Or, or even coming to worship on Sunday morning. I know Sunday morning's a great morning to sleep in. There was enough dark days in my past that Sunday morning, boy, if there ever was a day you needed an extra hour, it was Sunday morning. And, and so sometimes, and by the way, you have 540. You don't have to cross the desert, by the way, to come worship. But, but the reality is, you know, sometimes it's a challenge on Sunday morning to worship. Is he worth it? Is Christ as a treasure worth it? That you worship with people all giving praise to him. That we, we sing about our love and appreciation for him. So first, consider your own worship. And then from this last encounter, consider the call not just to worship, but to witness. You know, when these wise men left Christ, they were warned in a dream, another dream from another angel, they were warned in a dream to go another way because of the deceitfulness of Herod. Now, when they went back to where they came from, don't you think they would have said, we've seen the one. We've seen the one that has come from heaven sent to save. We've seen him. They would have talked about it. So they weren't just brought to worship, but they were sent to then witness to what they just worshipped. In Matthew 2, you see the nations coming to Christ. It's interesting in Matthew because at the end, he then sends the nations out to witness. So you have Matthew in Matthew 28, to go into all the world, teaching and baptizing, teaching them all that I've commanded you to do. And lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll be with you, Emmanuel, God with us. Back in chapter 1, now there it is in 28. I'm with you to, so you can worship me, and then I'm going to be with you as you then witness for me. And it's not surprising that Matthew records the conversion of a Gentile, a Roman centurion at the cross. Yes, he was the Son of God. So the, the, the word and the fame of God is now going out to the nations. But now it goes out. We now are the stars, if you will, to shine forth and to speak. So, so I, I would encourage you to, to see that Christmas is not simply about us worshiping the greatness of Christ, but also declaring the greatness of Christ to others. We are the outpost of heaven. We are the colony. We are his ambassadors. It is as if God is making his appeal through us. So the call upon the nations to worship the Son now comes through the church. So, so we see these three encounters. The Magi encounter the star, they encounter Herod, and they encounter the Christ child all teaching us, all reminding us, God wants the nations to come and love Christ. And now we are the ones that by God's grace have been privileged to do it. So pray for opportunities in this season to encourage. Encourage one another, but also encourage those that God has brought into your life. So let me just, let's take a minute now and just maybe silently ask God for grace to do this. Maybe confess your sins if you've fallen into a position of indifference. But let's take this minute and allow the word to kind of soak in our souls and begin to change us from, from glory to glory, and then I'll pray for us.